Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. We are continuing to focus on the prophetic foreshadows and footprints in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Today we're going to focus on him as our shepherd and king, as foreshadowed and prophesied through the person of David, the shepherd and the king of the people of God. So we're going to read, first of all, a prophecy concerning King David that answers a key question. How certain are the prophecies of God? Uh, That comes down to the heart matter, doesn't it? Do I believe that the prophecies of God are certain? Well, here God describes how certain the fulfillment of his prophecies are. Very helpful for all of us. Beginning in verse 17... For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack as a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will be no day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levites, the priests, ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. What a beautiful promise that is, that God's prophecies are as certain as the rising and the setting of the sun. Just as miraculous as that occurrence every day that we take for granted, the prophecies of God's word are certain. As he said, if I ever break my covenant with the day and the night season, my covenant will be broken with David. 
Therefore, he sang with great confidence through Jeremiah for us that we can trust his word. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, at a bridge toward verses that fulfill those promises. Let's look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begat Ram. Ram begot Amenadab and Amenadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we live in a day where we can see both the Old and the New Testament. Father, we are so grateful for the the full revelation of your word. Father, most of all, we are thankful that you have revealed your son Jesus to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his convicting power you have drawn us to yourself. So Father, today we pray that Jesus would be exalted and magnified that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to point people to him. And so, Father, we pray today that you would please speak through me because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the ultimate fulfillment of the passages similar to Jeremiah 33 concerning David are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal reigning king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So as we approach the scripture today, uh, we have to keep in mind that there were were two pinnacles that were very important to the Jewish mind in the Old Testament and that experience that is recorded there. One of those was the exodus, God's deliverance and the establishment of the Passover and that that whole scene of the death angel passing over those who had applied the blood to the doorpost of their homes that imagery becomes very rich for us when we think about the application of the blood of Jesus Christ as the atoning factor of our sin and only 
his blood can bring about that forgiveness. Then another pinnacle of the Old Testament is the rule and the reign of King David. If they were pointing back to important people in the Old Testament, they would would talk about Abraham and some of his descendants. They would talk about Moses and the people around him and what happened there. Then they would talk about King David as the bright spot and the the highest of all the kings in the Old Testament. And so when a Jewish reader uh, would read this prophecy or hear it proclaimed throughout the genealogy here, they would connect it with the prophecies of the Old Testament. When it talked about Abraham and, and David, they would immediately have in their mind some of the prophecies that centered upon them. So let's consider David and some of the prophecies that tie together and uh, focus on the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You'll see these scriptures on the screen. First of all, 2 Samuel 7.16. The Lord says to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Not just limited to time and space, but an eternal forever is what the promise was. Then the next passage is found in Psalm 89, 29. Speaking of David, I will give him an eternal dynasty and make his throne as enduring as the skies above. So the the moment you hear that the sky is falling, no, that's not true. Because the reign of Jesus, the Messiah, will be everlasting and enduring as the skies that we see each day. Then in verses 34 to 37. I will not break my covenant or go back on what I promised. Once and for all, I have vowed by my own holiness, I will never deceive David. His dynasty will last forever. His throne will endure before me like the sun. It will remain stable like the moon. His throne will will endure like the skies. So those are very profound promises, aren't they? If you look at it from a human perspective, limited to this earth, you might conclude that those were not faithful promises. But we know that in Christ, and as David's descendant, he takes on that eternal reign that we are promised that he will. Now let's look at the prophecy of Isaiah In Isaiah chapter 9, very familiar verse around the time we celebrate the birth of Christ, but it says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, of peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even evermore or forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Very bold promises concerning one who is to come, a descendant of David and one who would embrace the promises of those prophecies. Then you find in Luke chapter 1, at the coming of Jesus, there is a promise made to Mary, his mother. Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Isn't that beautiful how all of that culminates and comes to bear upon the person of Christ? Then in Luke chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 the angel is speaking to the shepherds and the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we might not make an immediate connection if we weren't biblically literate, but to refer to the city of David was to say the prophecy has been fulfilled because unto us this day is born in the city of David, Bethlehem, prophesied in Micah 5.2, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we're going to explore some verses in the context of King David's life that foreshadow the greatness of Jesus himself and also tie together with the redemptive work of God and bringing us to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the sermon in a sentence that we are looking at together. Let's, let's read that together. God loves people and works through them with providential precision beyond the brokenness and failure in their past by pouring out his mercy and grace to exalt his son Jesus Christ and to fulfill his eternal plan of redeeming all who believe in him. And so today we're looking at one of those people in the genealogy whose brokenness and failure in his life is thrown open for all to see. What an encouragement that is to us as you consider the passages with me today. First of all, I want us to, to understand from his name being at the heart of this genealogy that God doesn't choose and use those who are the most impressive, but rather he chooses and uses those whose hearts are most impressionable. It's all about King David's heart. If you look back with me at the anointing of King David, 
when Samuel anoints him as king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, there are some key descriptions about David here. You'll recall that Jesse is bringing his sons before the prophet Samuel and and Samuel has been sent there to anoint the one that God has chosen. Not the one of his choosing, but God's choosing. And after he has been impressed with Eliab, it says in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused and rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then if you look on down to verses 11 and 12, it says, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright or beautiful eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is The one. Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. The one thing that set David apart from his siblings was not in the outward appearance, not in his personal impressiveness, but in his ability to be impressed upon his heart those things that were most important. You see, it's all about our heart. If our heart is not pure before God, it will not bear up under whatever responsibilities God would give us. And so he looks upon the heart, and David is the one chosen. And then you find a scripture about his transition from being a a shepherd to being king. Both images very important for us. We think about the person of Christ. So in Psalm chapter 78, beginning in verse 70, Psalm 78 concludes with these words. God also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob or Israel his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them, he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Think about the order those two things are mentioned. He shepherded them by the integrity of his heart and secondly by the skillfulness of his hands. Now what do we tend to value more? What a person does outwardly, don't we? 
his skillfulness, his giftedness, his ability or, or how she can accomplish things. That's, that's what we tend to look at. We sometimes believe, well, if someone's doing the right thing, then they must have the right heart. But hypocrisy can fool us so quickly, can it? But here we're reminded of the very fact of why God chose David. He chose him because he would be one who would lead the people out of the integrity of his heart and because of the integrity of his heart, God would bless his hands and whatever he did with great skillfulness and effectiveness. I wonder in your life, where is your focus right now? Is your focus on God helping you to do what you want to do? If that's the case, you are not guaranteed his giving you the power to accomplish things with great skill. But if your focus is on God giving you a pure heart before him, a heart filled with motives that seek and search for the will of God in your life and are set upon doing his will, then he will bring about his empowering in your life to accomplish everything he has planned for you. It all begins with the heart. So when you think about King David, don't think about his crown. Don't think about his success. Don't think about his failure. Consider his heart. Remember, he was chosen after King Saul had failed. God had placed David very close to King Saul. As a matter of fact, there was no one really closer or more loyal outside of Saul's family than David was. But David had the painful experience of watching King Saul implode through self-destruction. Why was that? We're told when Saul was chosen, he seemed to be rather humble. But his heart was lifted up in pride. And that was the beginning of his undoing. So God, I believe, strategically placed David on the front row to watch King Saul implode through self-destruction, even lashing out at David as a vivid reminder of what could happen should his heart ever become inflated with pride. Now, am I saying King David was perfect? No, not at all. The only one who is perfect is the one to whom all of these prophecies point beyond David to King Jesus. However, he sought to live a life of perfect obedience to God and when he failed, he quickly experienced the convicting power of God in his life and he turned his heart back to God. So if you have had in your mind, God only uses people who are impressive. God only uses people who have the ability to to speak, the ability to woo a crowd or the ability to work a room and impact people's lives or, or do some great impressive thing. 
that's not the person God chooses and uses. He chooses that which is nothing to make it something we find in 1 Corinthians. He chooses what others would not choose. He doesn't choose the most impressive. He chooses the one who has the most impressionable heart before him. And so even considering David and moving toward Christ, the first area we should consider in our own lives is our heart. And so when we read those words in Matthew that Jesse begot David, all of those images come to our mind that are outward, but we need to look inward at his heart. Then there's a second truth we can draw by considering the life and reign of King David. And that is God doesn't choose and use those who are unbreakable, but rather he chooses and uses those who are broken over their sin. If you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, you find some of the darkest days in King David's life. Here is a man chosen long before he would inherit the throne. Here is a man chosen above all of his elder siblings. Here is a man that has come into power and has a kingdom at his disposal. Here is a man that's very familiar with the things of God. He has taken to heart his responsibility to reign under the rule of God in his life. But in a mere season in his life, he looks anything but like what God had chosen him to be. Notice how chapter 11 begins. Now it came to pass in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in Jerusalem. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Is that an excuse for our sin? No. But it helps us understand how frail we are and how weak we are. It's in that context that there from the the palace, he oversees the wife of one of his soldiers. Her name is Bathsheba. Her name is not mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Only who she was. You find it there in verse 6, before we go back to the story. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's what happens. The king sends for her, brings her that she is brought to him. He, in a sense, with his power, an abuse of power, he, he 
has an affair with her, and then those tragic words come to him from her, I'm expecting a baby. Remember the verse that says, be sure your sin will find you out? That's exactly what happened. Even King David was not above the consequences of sin. So now he faces a dilemma. Does he embrace his sin at this point? No. He, he tries to cover it up. He calls for Uriah to come off of the battlefield. Uriah comes home and he tells him, I, I, I want you to go and spend some time with your wife, but Uriah, because of his loyalty to the king and the kingdom and his fellow soldiers, refused to do that. Why would he partake of that privilege when all of the other soldiers were not getting the same? And so he sleeps outside of his home. David is faced with a deepening dilemma now. He was hoping that they would have time together so that it would appear that that was Uriah's child. But now Uriah has not played into the scam. So he, he sends a message back with Uriah to Joab. The message is this. In the heat of the battle, when the enemy is besieging our troops, cause everyone to retreat except for Uriah and leave him there to die, basically. And the king says, don't let this affect how you view me to Joab. Just accept it and do it. Don't let this displease you. So it happens. And Uriah is murdered at the command of the king. You see this deepening, darkening deception that he's trying to pull off? So in verse 25 of 2 Samuel 11, it says, Do not let this thing displease you to Joab, but notice what it says at the end of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Brings us to a new question, doesn't it? Are you more concerned about displeasing people than you are about displeasing God? Are you willing to blatantly and openly sin before the Lord, even thinking that because no one sees, no one cares, it affects no one? If you are more concerned about people's impressions of you, you have fallen into the same trap that King David fell into. 
those thoughts we have thought this past week, those things that we've done, those words that we've spoken that were out of the will of God and sinful, were done in the sight of God and were displeasing to him. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David, the king. Now try to put your feet in his sandals. What would that be like to go stand before a king who has already committed adultery, committed murder, has lied, has idolized people over God, Just look at the breaking of the commandments. How easy it would have been at this point of this deep, dark deception to just have Nathan killed as well and just continue the siege upon anyone that would question his integrity. But Nathan comes and tells him a story about a man who had a guest come to visit. And instead of taking from his many flocks and herds, he went to a poor family who had one ewe lamb. In that day, it would be like taking the family dog, their pet, somewhat of a family member. He went and took the one this man had and he killed it and served it to the people that came to visit. David said this man ought to pay for that with his life. And then those piercing words came from the lips of the prophet. You are the man. You are the one. And there David has yet another dilemma. So notice the journey he's been on. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that God said to the prophet, this is the one. Samuel had said to David, you are the one. You are the man to serve as king of the people of God. Now in his darkest day, from his brightest day, he is being told through the prophet by God, You are the one who has committed great sin before me and you are the one that will suffer consequences because of it. Have you ever made that journey in your life? Where God singled you out, he called you to himself, he brought you new birth through Jesus Christ and you began to follow him, you began to serve him and and it doesn't matter how long you have followed Christ and how committed you are, you are always vulnerable to sin. And Satan always knows what carrot to put out in front of you and to lure you forward. And haven't you made that journey where you thought, I'm going to be the one. He, He has called me as his child. He said, you are my child. But yet you come to those days in your life where sin ravages you and you are standing broken before God with a decision. Do I repent or do I further rebel? Do I repent or run? Do I turn to God or run away from him? 
that's the intersection where David found himself. The consequences remained in place, but we have recorded the heart-wrenching prayer that sums up his desire in that desperate situation in Psalm 51. Many times we read portions of this or we read the heart of this, but let's, let's hear the words of the entire psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. One thing that is clear here, this is a man who knows the heart of God. Although it's become blurred in his experience, although he has sinned and fallen prey to the enemy, because you see his greatest enemy was not on the battlefield, it was in his heart there at the palace. And although all of that had happened, he still understands that God is a God of loving kindness and tender mercies. And he's putting himself on the mercy of God. And he's pleading with him to blot out his transgression. Another word could be my rebellion. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's saying, would you, would you clear me of this guilt that I'm bearing? For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever been there? You can't get away from your sin. Everywhere you turn, you, you're, you're thinking about it. Every, every time you pray, you... You're, you're contemplating that and, and, and your prayers seem so futile and so empty. Why? Because the, the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so that separates us and damages our fellowship with God and we're, we're in that torment of it all. And our sin is ever before us. Have you ever known anybody to say, why are you looking at me like that? I, I didn't know I was looking at you. They were looking at how you were looking at them through the lens of their sin. Or if you had someone accuse you of something crazy and you thought, they're, why are you accusing me of that? Well, they tend to only see in others what they hate about themselves at that point. But then in verse 4 he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now notice the drastic difference here from when he committed the sin in 2 Samuel 11 and when he's repenting here. He's not saying, help Joab to feel better about me. Help Bathsheba to love me anyway. Help Nathan not to be too hard on me. He, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
He's there not concerned about displeasing Joab. Now he's concerned he has brought on the displeasure of God. And until you get to that point in your life where you view sin as much more than just something that you commit toward a person horizontally and you begin to see it as an ultimate violation of the law of God and sinning against his holiness, until you come to that point, you can't come to Christ. You won't come to Christ. What an example he becomes. Then he says in verse 4, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Notice what he's focused on. He's not focused on help me change my habits. He's pleading with God to change his heart. You see the vital difference there? Too many times we say, Lord, forgive me until next time. He's declaring, I don't want there to be a next time. I don't want to just stop doing something. I want to start being something. In the inward parts, he says, bring about truth. He was a man that was only consumed with a lie and deception and covering it up, but now he's desiring that truth will come and fill his inward parts. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's more concerned about his condition before God than the opinions of others in his life. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. See what he's saying? This is just one of many sins. He knew at his heart he was a sinner in desperate need of God's forgiveness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Still talking about the inner man, the heart. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now what happened to Saul when he became proud? It says that the Spirit of God departed from him. Now we might, reading this from the New Testament perspective, think that's a strange prayer. Because when you come to Christ and he has converted you and transformed you, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in your life and he will never leave you or forsake you. You are sealed by him. He's the guarantee of your ultimate salvation. But remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon men to accomplish a certain task. And when David was anointed king, the Holy Spirit came to rest upon him. He's praying that God will not rip him away from what God has called him to do, that God's Holy Spirit will continue to rest upon him and bless him because he knows that only the forgiveness of God can make him holy enough for the Spirit of God to bless him. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Now remember in the Old Testament, they knew God's salvation as a deliverance from evil, from opposition, from calamity. Salvation with a little s. If you are Christ's child, you've experienced salvation in all caps. Salvation, capital S, all the way through. And he's saying, you have delivered me before. Bring back that joy. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. I don't know how many times somebody has said, you know, I, I know I need to get back in church and I need to serve God. No. The greatest need is I need to come to Christ. I don't need to try to fix everybody else. I need to let Christ come into my brokenness and make a difference in me. Do you see how long it took David to get before he ever focused on people? He was making a promise to God and and covenanting with God that that if you will spare me and if you will teach me through this and if you will give me this new heart and if your Holy Spirit will continue to rest upon me, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted or turned to you. God can use our brokenness to bring about a brokenness in other people's lives so that they will be drawn to him. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. What blood guiltiness? He's guilty of murder. And deliver my tongue, and deliver me, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He's not going to be singing his own praise. He's not going to be boasting in his righteousness, but only in the righteousness of God. O Lord, Open my lips, he says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. If I could just bring something and give enough to you to get forgiveness, I would, he says. But I know that's not what you desire. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering and with whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. He's saying not only do a work in me, but do a work in my kingdom that you have entrusted me with. What a vivid picture of the truth. God doesn't choose those who are unbreakable but rather he chooses those who are broken before him over their sin. So yes, David suffered the consequences, but God set him free from the shame and shackles of sin. And what a beautiful foreshadowing of the forgiveness that we would come to experience in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, then finally, God doesn't choose and use those who are indispensable, but rather those for whom obedience is non-negotiable. 
Just think about that whole theme of obedience in David's life. His obedience didn't stop when he sinned and was disobedient. The enemy would say, Satan would say, well, well you've sinned and you've, you've messed up, so just might as well just go all out with it. What are you doing then? You're living in the shame and shackles of sin. The most important thing is not that you have disobeyed. The question is, will you obey on the other side of your disobedience? Will you get this right? Some of us are living under the shame and guilt of sin today because we have been stuck there instead of allowing God to bring about obedience in our life on the other side of our disobedience, and that begins with repentance. And David knew he was not indispensable because he had seen how dispensable Saul was. That's why in desperation he was pleading with God not to take this all from him, but to do a deep work in his heart. Because he knew the worst threat was not from without, it was the implosion of sin within. And for him, obedience even after disobedience was non-negotiable. If you look at Acts chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, Paul is preaching a sermon here. And, And marching through some of the history of God's people. Verse 21, he says, and afterward, the people asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. A man after my own heart who will do all my will. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, it said about Saul that he didn't do what God wanted him to do. For him, obedience was negotiable. Saul, for David, it was non-negotiable. Even when he did sin and when he did fail, obedience would follow. That's an important thing to consider. If you have sinned and damaged your fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has been quenched and grieved in your life, the best step toward seeing victory is to bring your heart before God, seeing cleansing from him and obedience, repent and come back into full fellowship with God. Or if you've yet to come to know Christ, don't just accept the fact that this is who I am and this is what I do. Bring your life to Christ, come to him for forgiveness. And so if there's a word that describes the life and the heart of King David, 
it would be obedience. He had an obedient heart. A heart of obedience. But we know the one promised to come through his lineage would be the one who showed us the greatest life of obedience. God, the Son, would become the Son of Man. He would take on flesh and He would enter into the human experience and He would take on some of the limitations that that we have. He was truly God but truly man and Jesus is the ultimate example of a submissive and obedient heart. Consider the scriptures on the screen. John 17, 4. Right before he is betrayed, he says to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Can you imagine going through one day in your life and having the assurance, I did everything God wanted me to do today. Let me back up. Can you imagine going through one hour and knowing that in that hour you did everything that God wanted you to do? Well, that might be quite a stretch. Maybe 15 minutes where I didn't have any selfish desires, ungodly thoughts, evil responses. But Jesus lived his entire earthly life doing everything the Father commanded him to do. He said, I do nothing but what the Father tells me to do. You see the ultimate obedience here. Then the next scripture, Hebrews 5. Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, God the Father, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, my salvation is not dependent upon my ability to obey the laws of God. My salvation is ultimately dependent upon Jesus' obedience to the Father in laying down his life on our behalf and shedding his precious, perfect blood for us. And as a result of that obedience of Christ, then when I obey him and come to him as the only one who can save me, then my life begins to embrace his life of obedience. And I obey him not to earn my salvation, but to express it to the world. So God doesn't choose those who are indispensable, rather those for whom obedience is non-negotiable. But consider one other passage about his obedience in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross, but his obedience had no limits. If I'm becoming more and more like Jesus, I'm losing the limits to my obedience. I'm not putting any limits there. Too many times we come to God and say, God, I'll do anything but this. I will go anywhere but there. I will do it forever until it gets hard. See all the stipulations, limitations we put on our obedience? But he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why? For our salvation. He was others-centered. He was centered on the Father's glory. He was centered on the salvation of people like you and me. And if I've come to know him, my life ought to reflect that through the obedient heart of my life. And obedience must become non-negotiable, even on the other side of my disobedience. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.